proteggerai con calibro affascini il tuo cuore e se ti perderai nel labirinto di un amaro autore ma i tuoi piedi Hello, everybody. I have Dr. Ashley Mater once again here. She's a psychotherapist, a sex therapist, an educator, and consultant. And she is returning to Love, Lust, and Laughter to discuss NRE. What's NRE? New Relationship Energy. And welcome, Ashley. I'm so glad Thank you're you. back. We, we have you. a, yeah, I, this is a wonderful connection with you. And what have you noticed in your practice lately that has to do with NRE, new relationship energy? Well, I think the NRE, I also, I call it limerence as well. So it's the same thing, um, that new relationship energy. It, it is, I think it is an energy in and of itself. And what I've noticed is that it's very interesting when, you know, some of my clients are coming in in brand new relationships. And so they have all this excitement, all this, it's just this extremely bright outlook. And then I, on the other end of the spectrum, I'm seeing clients who are towards the end of their relationships, whether it's a breakup or whether it's a divorce. And it's a very, it's very polar opposite feelings. So I just think it's just so interesting, but I am seeing, um, you know, just it's, this vibrancy that comes into my office or through the zoom screen or how, you know, what have you. So it's just been very interesting. It's this excitement, this kind of new outlook that like nothing could go wrong. Could it? Could it? <laughs> and of course I have the same issues, the same kinds of cases in my practice. So we're set here for a really interesting conversation. Um, and I think we should start, Ashley, by talking about the biological reaction that occurs. I mean, let's face it, everything starts in the brain anyway. And um, what yeah. about dopamine? We uh, both know about dopamine. Why don't you discuss dopamine a bit? I have always been told that I am kind of a, a wet blanket at a party when it comes to like talking about new relationship energy. Cause I'm always like, it just comes down to biological process. And it's like, how can you say that? That's so, but it's true. Um, that, that I mean, it, there's more to it in, in the sense of like, I, I think a person should enjoy it, but you know, dopamine, it is that hormone that makes you feel very high. It is, and you know, that's kind of where like addictions and everything come from that dopamine and falling in love also hits those dopamine. Your dopamine goes up when you're starting to fall in love. So does oxytocin. Sometimes adrenaline goes up all these very intense kind of even addictive type of like hormones are triggered. And so when we are falling in love or lust, um, there is, it, it mimics the dopamine receptor or dopamine can be so high that it can mimic a manic phase. So we are not necessarily seeing things or people clearly when we are falling in love. Yeah. 
I think uh, Dr. Helen Fisher uh, discovered a lot of these things when she was at Rutgers University and had access to a functional MRI to look at people's brains, and she did over the course of years. People newly in love and people who had been together for several years, maybe long-term, even more than several years. And, um, and she noticed that the brain chemistry changed. So in the early days, as you say, there's lots of dopamine and it certainly plays a role in arousal and seeking out rewards. And you're really focused on your partner in those early stages when you've got lots of dopamine, lots of testosterone, um, you know, you, you can't keep your hands off your partner. You stay up till three in the morning talking. This is usually when you're dating, but uh, it still is true with the honeymoon phase. We want to keep that honeymoon phase alive because it kind of feels like you're on speed. And, uh, and then, then over time, oxytocin takes over. And of course, oxytocin, the more we're touched, the more we want to be touched. It promotes bonding and feelings of comfort. So we may go from feeling like we're on speed to feeling like we're on an antidepressant. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's interesting also when we're, you know, when in that NRE period of fall, like falling in love is that, you know, things that like people like would normally do like eating and sleeping. It seems like you don't have as much of a need for food or sleep or any of those things because you're so focused in on that person and that takes over. Um, but with the oxytocin, it is kind of like that antidepressant and that more of a bonding hormone. Yeah, more of a bonding hormone so that you can be friends. And of course, the higher your levels of oxytocin generated by touch, it's a positive feedback loop. The more we're touched, the more we want to be touched. It makes us not only better lovers, but better parents and Absolutely. grandparents in my case. Um, so we, yeah, the we, touch is so important to our well-being. So that's good. That's a good thing about oxytocin, but the new relationship energy, well, dopamine is kind of at the centerpiece of, of a lot of this. And so I think you, I suggest to my, my couples that they trick their brain into producing dopamine and dopamine needs novelty. So you go away together. Uh, now we can do that again. You go to a hotel. You have new things. You don't have to keep track of your checklist. And you can right. be more present and, um, and, and go on trips. And what, what other ways can you trick the brain to producing more dopamine, do you think? Well, it, things like um, just even trying something new together, whether it's a new hobby, going to an amusement park or something like that, kind of like when, when our adrenaline is also up, mm -hmm. um, it, there's a, there was a research study years ago, and I can't remember who was it, but it was people who walked across this really rickety bridge. And at the end, like people found if they both like uh, two people walked across, it's like a man and a woman, like in a heterosexual, you know, coupling, if they went through this kind of high stress period together, like walking over this rickety bridge, they found each other automatically more attractive. So there's something about that adrenaline. That's why they also say that people can meet each other at the gym because you're in that high adrenaline, um, like play, like place. So I think if a couple also wants to connect, 
I'm not saying that you need to go skydiving together. And if that's your thing, I think go for it. But yeah. even something like, you know, like a zip lining or something like that, or, or like a roller coaster or just trying something new, um, getting away. I think a vacation is really important just to get away from, yeah, that checklist, the, everything that you have to do work. Um, and if you are able to get away without kids, that's extremely important. Um, so those things I think can help rekindle or the other thing that can help rekindle, um, and this comes more around like, you know, sex, but trying something different. I think so many couples start, they figure out what works for them and they keep, they keep it in this tiny little box yeah. and they don't it, get out of that box. So like add something else, add a little, like maybe like some light kink to it or something like that, just to like have these experiences together can increase that dopamine, increase that connection. Absolutely. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I like the light kink can often, yes, because it is something new. Okay, maybe I'm gonna put my heads over my, I'm doing it now, you can't see. My head's over my, uh, my hands over my head and maybe there's a light scarf that your partner binds your hands and then he can have his way with you. And Exactly. Yeah, so, but to try new things, which of course, novelty dopamine try new things and and that will keep things lively um lots of things get in the way i talk about and this contributes to the demise of of um of, of dopamine and the and the demise of the new relationship energy uh two common syndromes i found this over now it's it's 40 years i i've been looking at some of my my resume stuff and it says over 30 but now it's actually 40 years i've been doing this my goodness anyway i found this true one is the dins syndrome that's double income no sex oh. so this is um long hours of unending pressure just absolutely kills the sex drive and then no sex ultimately ruins relationships. And of course, ironically, one of the best stress relievers is, yeah, sex. Yep. The other uh, syndrome is the TTFS syndrome, too tired for sex. Yes. So you get requests that are endless and you're constantly being pawed. Some people feel that way. And for a woman, for a woman, there can be post baby body issues. Mm -hmm. um, it it all adds up to little desire to share oneself, to share oneself, and um, and uh, some women are saying, "Oh, I hear this is my practice. Sex is the new sleep." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I I think it's it's interesting because that like I work with couples who at a certain point one of them even that they're so sensitive because they're, they're thinking that their partner's always going to want sex or that's all they want that I, I hear that a lot and they they start avoiding any type of physical contact mm -hmm. no no touching like they almost like cringe with hugs because they're afraid that any of that touching 
is going to lead to sex. And, and of course I'm thinking like, well, what would be so bad about that? Um, but so I think, and then that just starts creating more like the opposite. I always call it thoughtful distance. We can get more into that later, but like it just yes. creates really like a, a distance. And then they're just kind of, that's when that, that what I would call like the roommate syndrome happens. They're just kind of coexisting together. Yes. And when, and then they can often, often feel more like brother and sister yeah. then. And then we've got the, the incest taboo that, that runs unconsciously typically, but um, yeah, they, they're, they're the, the lust, the erotic part has just gone from their relationship. So having to rebuild connection and touching and, um all of that is part of our work isn't it ashley absolutely and i and i think another thing that i hear a lot from women in heterosexual marriages or coupling is that you said like you talked about like the siblings i've also heard i feel like his mother oh yes oh yes and i don't and especially i heard one woman say this lately and she has three small children she said, I don't need another kid. <laughs> <laughs> and that's real. Yeah. Um, but what I have noticed with those couples is that they're in, in, in this, in this case, like the woman is extremely over-functioning mm -hmm. and that is, and, and it makes it almost hard for the husband to do even normal functioning. So it locks them, it like binds their anxiety almost like one's over-functioning and one's under-functioning and they won't move, but they both complain about each other. Mm -hmm. Neither one are like chain. And so I think that's what happens. And then, but if, I think if the partner who's an over-functioner would just function to a normal level, it would give the other partner the confidence maybe to then raise up their functioning. So then there's more of a partnership and equality in the relationship. Equality in the relationship. Um, you know, some that, that reminds me of another thing that often bought, uh, connected to this. And I think it's important for couples to recognize that fairness, not equality, is the goal of a marriage. You know, from um, from a oh a legal maybe intellectual standpoint, you you don't owe your spouse a back rub or maybe a sexual favor or even a kind word of encouragement. Uh, you know, I remember one guy responding. To, I said something like that, and he said, "Well." If my wife's ego is so fragile that she needs to be reminded that she's beautiful, well, I think she should take it up with her therapist, you, in an individual session. <laughs> but then I said, how hard is it really to be kind and supportive, even when it isn't technically required? You know, marriage really gives, or a, or a committed relationship, partner relationship, um, it's an opportunity, it, it gives you lots of opportunities to offer small doses of affection to another person. And because that other person might really need it because that other person can feel weak, confused and insecure. And maybe you're feeling the same thing. So offering some affection can bridge that gap and get you talking and maybe touching and giving each other a massage, all of that. 
Absolutely. I think just those, like the small, like those small words. And, and I, I heard it from one of my clients who said like, she knows that she's desirable. She knows that she's attractive mm -hmm. and she knows other men find her attractive, but mm -hmm. she wants her husband to have that same type of attraction and a passion towards her. That is so true because, um, when, when we're feeling desired, um, it, it can, and most of us, I used to more than, more than I do now. I don't now because I've got this great husband <laughs> who puts my pleasure first and lets me know, but many people crave assurance, if not in words, then in body language, that we are still desirable to our partners. You know, we want one who wants to have sex with us, wants to. Uh, so I think in some cases, Ashley, tell me if, you, if this rings true for you. The need to be desired is as important, if not more important, than the sex itself. Oh, absolutely. I, I work with um, a person who they have not had sex in... I don't think they've ever actually had sexual like intercourse um, um, because some trauma, different things like that with, with the, the, the female partner, but there is a, there's a, so much touch and love in that relationship mm. and that they both know that they are desired and mm -hmm. that keeps them together. Yeah. And that keeps resentment from not being formed. Of the resentment piece, yes, that is the huge thing. Resentment often contributes hugely to the decline of NRE, new relationship energy. Can you expand on resentment? Well, I think what happens a lot of times is in the, the in NRE, no one wants to lose that. So I think people start. I'm going to call it like adapting to the other person, whether it is to avoid conflict, whether it is um, they're afraid of abandonment, whatever it is that they start adapting to the other person and they, the, the, both people are adapting to each other. So they might not bring up things. They might let things try to let things roll off their back. Um, and, but eventually things start happening and that if, if it's not discussed, or even thought about like fair conflict is important in a relationship. Mm, yeah. If it's not like let out that resentment builds. It's just like, I think about it as just like, you know, you're just stacking like glasses or cans on top of each other and eventually it's going to fall down. And what happens, what I see in my office is that couples come to me after years of resentment being built up and at a point to like, there's just like pure contempt. And honestly, there's not much I can do at that point. Um, I'm not a wizard. So mm -hmm. it's, because at that point there's, it's, it, there's so much built up. It's, uh, I've, I've had to help, you know, couples like divorce fairly. Um, mm -hmm. yes. but I, but I do think that if people could, couples could actually start the couple's therapy I'm not saying in the NRE, because I know that like, there's really nothing you can do for a couple at NRE. They're just too excited and nothing could go wrong. But after that 
starts like that that like wanes I think it would be important just to, as one one of my couples calls it their relationship tune-up um that's their anniversary gift to each other is that they go to couples therapy once a year oh I love that idea <laughs> it's amazing I think it's great and and I wish people would start doing that just to kind of check in to have a holding place that there's are some things that have not been discussed, whether it's about finances, family, sex, what have you, that there's a holding space that's safe, that they can talk about that and get it out. Maybe it's only one session, maybe it's two or three, like who knows? But I think if couples could start doing that, um, I think that would help the relationship so much better than like waiting towards like, it's like the breaking point. Yeah, um, you and I both know about John Gottman, who has done studies on couples uh, for over 40 years, and it, he's got a beautiful body of work. And, um, and John Gottman talks about this contempt, that criticism can lead to contempt, and then that can lead to, to stonewalling yes. and withdrawal. But I think that the contempt can be fueled if, if the person is not very realistic in the relationship, does not remember that nobody can do everything. I mean, I really think it's misguided to think that a spouse who isn't meeting all of your needs is failing the job. You know, um, because you think about it, maybe Maybe your spouse is a supportive listener. Maybe your spouse is a, a thoughtful co-parent, um, perhaps a competent financial partner, but is not the most adventurous lover or doesn't enjoy the same cuisines that you do. Right. <laughs> and so I think it's, it's a good thing to be realistic. Finding a spouse who meets most of your needs most of the time, that's a win. Absolutely. And I think something that a lot of couples um, have to tell themselves is, and because I hear, I hear this a lot too. Well, you know, my partner should just know what I want. How would mm -hmm. they know if you haven't communicated it? And because what you, like what one person needs or wants in a relationship maybe very different than what their partner needs or wants. And so that they might, the partner might be giving something that they think that they would want, but the other partner's not receiving it in that way. Cause like, well, that's not what I want. And so that's when like the, you know, the criticism starts coming and then like the defensiveness and then the contempt and then the stone, like it's, it, yeah. so I, I wish more like there's, you know, couples, you know, no one's a mind reader and so what one person needs, you can't just say, oh, you should just know. That's not really fair. Uh, no, I, the mind reading part is, exists more, more than a lot of people think it exists. Yeah, the, I mean, the, I've done the, it before, so I get it. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Uh, say, well, the idea is I've had, I've had, people say, well, if he really loved me, he would know what I want every moment of the time. And it really is like going on a treasure hunt without any clues. You've yeah. got to have communication. And um, 
and and my book love in the time of corona which dr ashley reviewed so nicely on her website which is our shine s-i-s-h-i-n-e dot org our shine dot org she reviewed my book it's very generous thank you ashley again oh, for you're welcome it was great doing that and um uh, yeah, there's a lot on Ashley's website, so I encourage people to go there, and I'll put it in my show notes later. Um, I think uh, that, so we, we talked about the resentment, and, um, you know, if, we, I think we also need to say that um, we, we need to, to have more sex, because that can really give us assurance if not in words and in body language that we're still desirable to our partners we need to have more sex it helps it helps the connection and and you know we both i think we both talk about sex is not intercourse there are all right. these other things you can do and it would be very hard to go from having no sex for years to thinking about just having penetrative sex right for one thing the woman if she's at all menopausal perimenopause or whatever may have pain with intercourse. It's another use it or lose it thing. The vagina, the, the muscles that line the vagina um, are can be strengthened uh, by doing Kegel exercises. I tell women that don't have partners, if they're older, they should at the very least be masturbating with a dildo and then bearing down on that dildo to keep those PC muscles strong in the vagina. And that and this this can this can help. Um sex is like use it or lose it. It's just like kind of is it's, it's not like riding a bike, that's for sure. No, it isn't. And and by the way, for older men, erections are good for erections, right? It keeps the blood flow going, the nitric oxide inside the penis. Uh, strong and um, um, of course, what what Viagra part of the work that Vi Viagra does for a man is it it activates the what or increases the nitric oxide inside the penis, and um, that's that's important. Uh, so we have to kind of build up to it. But I I think this is why sensate focus homework, full body caressing, taking turns. Uh, and Masters and Johnson did some wonderful work, and um, and they came up with the, the or Virginia Johnson it came up with the term sensate focus, and they observed lots of couples making love in their research in the fifties and sixties, and she felt that too many couples were too genitally focused. Yeah, that there's from the top of our head to the bottom of our toes, we have all these possibilities. And some people just get stuck between the legs. So the first uh, two stages that, that are written about in, in my book and uh, are you don't even you don't even have penetrative sex. You focus more on the face, hands and feet and then the rest of the body. I had I sent my book to a longtime friend who happens to be now 95 and still sexually active with his partner of a number of years. And he said in all of his long life, he never realized that the rest of his body could feel so good. He and his partner got my book and immediately went and put it into service. So That's I love great. that. Yeah. 
He said, I wish I'd had your book, you know, 40, 50 years ago. <laughs> so, um, it's This is important for couples to know that sex does not equal intercourse, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And there's so many other juicy things that a person can do. And I think the, the, the other thing too is, you know, if a woman is you know, menopausal and let's say that the, the, the man has had erectile dysfunction for a long time and all of a sudden decides to get on Viagra or any erectile enhancement drug, it's really important to have that discussion beforehand um, because you can't just be like, oh, I have an erection. Let's, let's, use this, the woman might not be ready. So being able to do the sensate focus, realize that there's things other than intercourse and maybe work up to that. Work up to it. Yes. Um, there were, I remember this so well, when Viagra was approved, Pfizer was approved by the FDA in April of 98, I had a radio show in Hawaii which went for five years, went to all the neighboring islands and and people would call in. And um, right after it was approved in April of 98, I had um, a guy who was willing to go public because he had diabetes and uh, an older guy, a columnist in, in Hawaii in the Honolulu Advertiser, three dot columnist. And I had on a urologist. And um, we talked about, about what this meant. Well, then we came back and talked about it about a year ago, a year later. And there were a lot of so-called Viagra divorces because now the guy can get an erection and he shows his wife who's been not long neglected, no emotional foreplay, nothing. Yeah. Look what I have for you. And she looks at him and says, You've got to be kidding. <laughs> yeah, and get that away from me. <laughs> get that away from me. <laughs> you know, the emotional foreplay for most women is really important. And, and even knowing, a lot of guys need to know that a woman needs 15 to 20 minutes before penetrative sex should occur. Yeah. The entrance to her vagina thickens. The uterus, if she has a uterus, lifts up above the cervix. Um, the top part of her vagina thicken, uh, balloons out, and uh, then she's more ready for intercourse. But that doesn't happen right away, and most guy, guys really need to get more familiar with her clitoris and the rest of her body. So, and you also, add to that, <laughs> I bet you can. Yeah, well, yeah, the, I mean, not only just like taught like sexual foreplay, but yeah, just the. The words of caring or, um, hey, guess what? Like, um, I'll make dinner tonight or like those little things, just like even just like, like sharing responsibility or like, or saying, um, you know, whether it's words of encouragement or compliments, um, just those little things to me are also kind of like the emotional foreplay, um, that can be really, really helpful. It can, you know, you know, I thought I was going to be in the mood and then, um, you know, all these stressors happen. So, you know, being able to like someone that like a partner to help with that or any, like those are things like that support can also be really good for emotional foreplay. 
I agree. And I think sometimes it's important for a person to, uh, well, I, I actually call this enlightened self, self, no, unselfishness, because sometimes if you let your, your own needs take a back seat from time to time and give your spouse the kind of selfless support and encouragement that you would extend to a close friend. You're, if you see your spouse as a need, give them support. And that's part of the emotional foreplay too, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, and um, yeah, we, we, um, we need to be unselfish occasionally, but sometimes we need enlightened selfishness too, where we take care of ourselves. And, but talk about it with your partner. If you need some space, um, and many people do, especially in this time of, we're still, uh, we, there's a lot of amb ambiguity in this time, post pandemic, but it's still, uh, still the worries are on, but to take care of ourselves and say what we need, and maybe we need a little break from our partner and we can say that too, but phrase it in a way that the partner doesn't think you're abandoning them. Absolutely. I look at it as like, if a person can take some thoughtful distance, I like that's, I think the term thoughtful distance, um, being able to say like, I'm taking distance, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not doing it in a way to, um, push you away or I'm, I'm, ga I look, I'm gathering self, I'm self-soothing. Um, I, I actually read an interesting article about how the sixth love language should be distance. Um, oh, yes. Oh, expand on that. Yes, yes. So it was just that some, you know, some couples actually do very well with having more distance. Um, not every mm -hmm. couple. I mean, I think every couple's different in this, but like some couples just do very well with having distance and um, being able to, you know, whether it is live apart or being able to go away for like, you know, let's say if they have the financial means, one of them can go away for a month for like a retreat or just like to work somewhere else, like remotely. Um, and I'm not talking this way. I mean, again, I'm not, not seeing an open relationship. That's also okay. If it's like, you know, consensual non-monogamy, if that works. Exactly. For exactly. Um, I definitely think that can work for certain couples, but this is just, this has nothing to do with non-monogamy. This just has to do with the distance of being able to gather self and be like, you know, who am I? Because a lot of times, um, so much of ourself can get lost in relationships mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that, that you're so afraid of like, you know, you can call it codependency or what have you, but you're so afraid of like what the other person's thinking or doing. And so you, you don't necessarily show up for self, like a, you, a person you normally would. Um, you don't hold on to self because of that fear of abandonment or, um, you know, a fear of conflict, kind of what we talked about at the beginning. So this is kind of like what I call with like differentiation of self. And part of that can be to work on that for some people is I'm going to take some thoughtful distance so I can gather myself a little bit more. That could be, you know, you know, being by yourself and, um, I enjoy, doing some traveling by myself, I, I get a lot of um, fulfillment from that. Um, but it can also be like a, a girl's trip or a guy's trip. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's super important to have that kind of distance to keep that spark alive. 
I do too. And I'm, uh, I've mentioned this on the show before, but I, uh, I have the living apart together LAT relationship with my husband and he lives about 15, 20 minutes away. And uh, he comes to my place Wednesday nights and I go to his place on the weekends and we travel together, but it gives us time to anticipate seeing each other, that little bit of distance. By the way, dopamine, when we're anticipating a good sexual time, dopamine comes into play, just the anticipation. So that has been, now, admittedly, lots of people can't afford to do this kind of thing. And more people, but more people over 50 are doing it. It'd be very hard to do it with children, of course, and raising children. But it is, uh, but more and more sort of retired or semi-retired people are doing it. They've they've become used to uh, being on their own and um, they like having the space, so it works. Yeah, I, I think it's a great idea and I, I wish more, I, I think more people are gonna start exploring that because I, I think they realize that that distance does help. They also can have, a person can have their own life um, still, and mm-hmm. then they can also have their life together. Things, I think it makes it so much, and then the excitement, that dopamine, like waiting to see you know, each other. I think that, I think it can really create a very intimate relationship. Which I is do. the opposite with mm-hmm. what some other people would say, like, oh, well, you just want to like, you know, live with that person. And, um, and, and I think there is a difference I was actually talking to about this with a client today about there is a difference about dating in your twenties versus 40 and above. Um, Because I think in your twenties, there's more of an urgency of finding someone. Yeah. And, you know, having all those steps of like, Oh, moving in together and getting and all that. Whereas in, you know, forties and above, I think a lot of people are just like, I really like my life the way it is. There's, there's more of a, a, you're more settled into your identity. Well, yes. And, and anyway, the, the, that decade of your 20s is a time when many, most people are find, finding out about what who they are, what they want uh, in a partner. And so I, I did this myself. I didn't marry the first time till I was 30. So that gave me all of my 20s to have lots of different experiences, lots of traveling alone, um, lots of kind of figuring out what I wanted and what I didn't want. Mm -hmm. And I encouraged my daughter and my son to get married closer to 30. My daughter married at 33 and my son is about to marry at 42. (laughs) So they took their mother's advice. That's great. I know. I know we have a better chance of, of making it work. Um, we have a better chance because we're more mature to know our triggers. I'd like to just talk for a moment about triggers because if we know our triggers, um, we're less likely to have uh, some problems in a, in a long-term relationship. And we might, you know, as we struggle with uh, NRE. Um, so, 
new relationship energy. So in terms of knowing our triggers, um, well, think about it. You know, we have basic needs and desires, and, and those often um, are for acceptance, attention, safety, love, respect, being in control, mm-hmm. being in control. A lot of people need to be in control and being needed. And uh, as a person gets older, they they may think, oh, some of these needs haven't been met and these desires may come to the surface and 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 maybe even bump in uh, bump into the spouse's vulnerabilities. So I think a lot of us do have trust issues or fear of abandonment, while others have anxiety about being stifled and controlled. We've got to look at those things. And, and what, you know, and where does that stem from and, and knowing more about that and talking about it? Cause I think also what happens too is when, you know, when someone, a couple gets together, you know, there's that kind of like that fusion and mm. they, they grow, like they seem like they're on the same path and growing together. But if one of them starts making more of a movement to growth, like personal growth, whatever that's going to look like for that person, it's going to cause a hiccup in that relationship because it shakes up homeostasis unless both of them are, are committed to their own personal self growth. Um, so I think that makes like, and that can be triggering for a, a person like, Oh, this person's growing. They are, you know, whatever they're doing to kind of, whether it's therapy, let's, um, that might even feel threatening to the partner of like that person is, um, you know, going to find out about me or whatever it is, Um, knowing those triggers. And I think, I think it is important to start therapy, just not just couples therapy, just individual therapy to kind of know what, you know, what emotional baggage are you bringing to the table and what do you still need to work through? What do you still need to work through? Yes, and uh, checking in with a therapist. Sometimes I've worked a year with a couple and then we stop and say, okay, this is just stopping out. Next year, maybe you'll wanna check back in and it's kind of a maintenance. How am I doing? Am I applying what, are we applying what we learned? And that can work very well. Yes, so um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, some ways in because we ha- we have we have moments that are that are difficult for us uh, in in marriages and and they get in the conflict. You touched on conflict earlier, Ashley, but uh, so I have some ways to not react badly in the moment. And um, and these are all ways where you can cope so you can remain calm and reflective rather than act out of fear or anger. Um, and there, you know, think about some examples in those of you listening, think about examples in your own um, relationship um, and how you're triggered and how maybe talking about something would help. 
So uh, the first thing I'm to avoid overreacting, because um, lots of couples overreact. Uh, I think it's important to remove your attention from the situation or person and put and put it on your breath. You know, breathing always helps, right? So inhale slowly through your nose and exhale through your mouth and then silently count to 10 and repeat this until you feel calm. Breathing always helps, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and what I like to add to kind of feel more grounded is mm-hmm. clasp your hands together and rest them on. I'm doing it right now. Like no one can see me, but rest yeah. them on top of your head oh. and breathe. And it is such a grounding feeling just to rest your hands on top of your head. Um, it can bring you back. Um, the other thing I tell couples is if they are finding a conflict getting too heated mm-hmm. um, is take a time out. Um, yeah. to gather thoughts, whether it is um, 15 minutes, whether it's the next day, depending on the topic mm-hmm. uh, to be able, but I always say, don't go over 24 hours because then you're just sweeping it under the rug and you're just going to have a lumpy rug. So a lumpy rug. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Don't sweep it. Oh, so many couples do that. They sweep it under the yeah. rug and, and they don't return to it. Um, no, and they just keep circling and it's going to be, a, it's always, and, and I'm not saying that every conflict is going to get resolved in the moment. There's going to be certain topics that, and that this doesn't mean that this, this is a deal breaker for a couple, but there are just certain topics that the couple may never, ever see eye to eye on, whether that be a per like parenting or, um, how to deal with family. Um, like they may never say, see eye to eye on it. So there might be a constant, like, but like, that doesn't mean that like, as long as both people are heard, I think that is the key thing for fights like that. Where both people feel really heard and yeah. recognize, well, it's the same thing in the sexual relationship, isn't it? Yeah. Am I desired? Am I seen? Yeah. Uh, and this is important, but yeah. And then, but to, I love this idea though, going back to it, you rest your hands on top of your head, just one on top of the other, right? Yep. Just one on top. I I usually like, um, you know, intersect my fingers and then put them on my head, but yeah, it can be either way. And just like your elbows are out and you just close your eyes and then take a deep breath and then let it out through your mouth. And there is something about this that really is, I, I, I mean, I've, I've done that for clients and panic attacks as well. And it works yeah. really well. That is such a good exercise. Very, very good. Um, I think it, it, it probably gets the, the vagus nerve to be interacting and that affects all of our organs. So we're much likely, much less likely to be fearful or having or blowing everything out of proportion if we can breathe and get centered yeah and uh and and maybe asking yourself why you know why am i feeling so fearful why am i feeling so angry and if you if you have some time to think about this you know you you can you can perhaps come up with some better answers um maybe you'll Think about worst case scenarios um, and 
maybe you recognize that you're catastrophizing and that that a particular thing meant that your relationship was over not so yeah communication communication is king right <laughs> yeah i've also um i worked with a couple who the the you know one of them accused the other one of stonewalling all the time when they were fighting which is obviously not a good thing but as i dug a little bit deeper with the stonewalling it was that that person wasn't intentionally stonewalling it some some people kind of go into a fight flight or freeze when it comes to a conflict mm, and yes. it takes they, they their brain slows down mm -hmm. and they can't think of things to say they they take such a hard they take a longer time forming thoughts so it seems like they're stonewalling and that could be because maybe there was a lot of fighting growing up and so they freeze. There's so many reasons why that might happen or they might just want to be really thoughtful because a lot, some of them I've heard some people say like, I have such a fast anger and I could say something really nasty, but I don't want to do that. So I have to think through it. And so it looks like stonewalling and silence, but the person is just, sometimes people have a harder time processing when conflict happens so if i if any of the listeners if that is you just communicate that with your partner i think that's really important saying like i'm not trying to stonewall i just have a really hard time forming my thoughts and thinking fast enough because a lot of times that that doesn't happen a lot of times a, a person might actually form more thoughts when the conflict seems to be over because they can't think during that heightened arousal. Exactly right. Exactly right. And John Gottman found in his research that it's it's men that are more likely to stonewall than women. And he, because he, he was able in his research to, to hook his couples up with all kinds of sensors and then examine the data um, and he found that men overheat more than women do. And they're, they're, they might, some men might even be afraid that they would uh, physically act out oh, and hurt, hurt, the, hurt their partner. So they want to be alone. They need to calm down and breathe. So that happens too. Yeah. And, um, and I think finding the words, typically a more introverted partner can get overwhelmed with lots of emotion and and has a more difficult time finding the words people grow up in some families where the parents don't appreciate any extremes of feelings they want that they want their kids so they don't have troubles to kind of stay in neutral they the parents don't know how to deal with extreme anger or even extreme happiness because of their own situation yeah. um so there's that there's some it's complicated doesn't it keep our our work just ever so fascinating though and <laughs> it really really does and i and i think it's just and I, the other thing too i think is really interesting working with you know people on both sides of like you know nre and then like you know a divorce like a pending divorce is that you know no matter what i think this is like knowing your triggers but even when a relationship is ending understanding your responsibility it's never just one person's fault it never is like both play into a dynamic 
and I mean, unless it's like in cases of like severe abuse that that's, but like there is a dynamic that like gets locked in. So kind of understanding like yourself and that like understanding your role in one relationship can help you be a better partner in the next relationship. Absolutely. Keep your eyes open, learn and improve, learn and improve. Um, yeah, it's never just, it's a lot of times when I do couples counseling in the beginning, there's some blaming on one person's part, pointing the finger at the other person. And, uh, and they say that when one person is pointing a finger, the other person, there's somehow four fingers pointing back. And, um, we don't want that to happen. We, I think we need to find more things in our couple's relationship to say yes to. It's, you know, it, pr it provides a positive loving dynamic and it just opens up so many possibilities. And for couples that are thinking about divorce, um, I think they should actually admit that they could get divorced. It, it can, because facing the possibility of a divorce means you're thinking about the connections that would be severed if your marriage ended. Um, and then we're a little more conscious of our vulnerabilities. Yeah. And I think I, I often say, you know, your spouse's love wasn't permanently and irrevocably gifted to you when you walked down the aisle. It was loaned to you. So yeah. proceed accordingly. Um, I think, you know, remind them that you have what it took to fall in love so it's entirely possible that you have what it takes to stay there, the NRE. <laughs> yeah, trying to work on that, which is, again, like, that's, like, being able to do that. And, you know, again, starting the process of therapy earlier rather than later. Mm-hmm. Earlier than, yeah. Gottman, did, did I say this earlier? Because I'm thinking about it. They found it takes the average couple uh, seven years to to get therapy. Yeah, the, and they're miserable sense. in the meantime. Yeah. So we have to close this off because we have just about run out of time. And I am so pleased because Dr. Ashley is going to return here uh, in three weeks. I'm doing my shows every three weeks now. And so this will be part two with Dr. Ashley. And... Just give us a little bit of a taste of what we're going to talk about very, very quickly. Yeah, we're going to just go. We're going to talk a little bit about family and what family has to do kind of with our current emotional process. And we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, parenting and parenting during anxious times. So, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting show. For sure. Shows are always interesting with you, Ashley. Thank oh, you thanks. so much for joining me again. I think it's. Uh, it's been helpful. For, I'm going to guess very helpful for a lot of uh, the listeners and um, it will be archived. So that's a good thing always. Thank you, Ashley. Great. Thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll talk again in three weeks Can hardly wait. Yes. Looking You're a wonderful guest. You're a wonderful guest, Ashley. Thanks. Goodbye, everybody. Cosa leggerai? Con calibro affascini il tuo cuore. 
e se ti perderai nel labirinto di un amaro autore. 